CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week, we're discussing free will, rules and authority. Is there space left for individual autonomy when we are constrained by our genes, manipulated by technology and shaped by the cultural zeitgeist? To help us discuss freedom, we are joined by neuropsychologist Paul Brox, philosopher Julian Bugini, historian of political thought Hannah Dawson, and post-realist philosopher Hilary Lawson. We all know the difference between um, a life that feels free and a life that is impeded in various ways. If you enjoyed today's episode, Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, David Aranovich. Once it was straightforward. We were born free and shackled (laughs) by self-serving authority. Now many, from neuroscientists to social theorists, argue we were never free in the first place. I'm not. Constrained by our genes, manipulated by technology, there seems to be little space left for individual autonomy. Should we conclude that the very idea of freedom was a mistake which, once abandoned, will enable us to reframe human behaviour and success and create a more equal society? Or is this madness that threatens not just our personal lives, but the values of responsibility and opportunity on which our culture was built? Which is a big question. Oscar, Oscar. Technology and society now leave no space for individual freedom. Um, And it's you first, Paul. Okay. Um, Well, I come at this sector of of neuroscience, neuropsychology, um, clinical neuropsychology in particular. Um, And in case I drop dead of a heart attack in the next 10 minutes, I want to give you my take in just a couple of lines. Do we have free will? Yes and no. Um, And I'm comfortable with that paradox, that uh, um, contradiction. And the point I really want to get across is I think free will is intimately intertwined with the notion of the self. We can't understand free will. It doesn't have any meaning at levels of analysis below talk of the self or the person. Why is it important? Why is free will important? Um, because really, because every kind of freedom, political, economic, social, personal, whatever, rests on this very basic assumption that we have free will, that we can take decisions, we can choose the course of our lives, we take trivial decisions every minute of the day, we take big decisions not quite so often, but we're taking decisions all the time, and that is the essence of being a person, I think. So free will is fundamental to the sense of self. So I, need, we, I think we need to put the question of free will 
squarely within that context. I think free will doesn't make any sense at lower levels of analysis, like uh, biology, neurophysiology, uh, certainly not physics. Um, at that level, words like purpose and goals and aims and decisions and choices, choices don't have any currency whatsoever. However, they're the coin of the realm at the level at which we talk about ordinary things, people interacting with each other, the goals and plans that we have in our daily lives. Now, I arrived at this point of view partly through my work in clinical neuropsychology. And when I got into this field about 30 years ago, um, we knew quite a bit about how the brain does things like memory and language and controls action and so forth. We did not know very much about how all that came together to produce a sense of self, an introspective sense of self. And it dawned on me that we could actually begin to think about these things in a neurological sort of way. And I also realized that there were people who had certain brain conditions who completely lost their sense of free will and therefore their sense of personhood. And I won't elaborate on that now, but we can come back to that if, if it's helpful and if there's time. Um, free, free will or the sense of free will contributes to that part of ourself which gives us unity. There's another part which gives us continuity over time, but it's that sort of unity, that point of consciousness, the decision-taking entity. So I'm prepared to accept hard determinism. Um, it's neither here nor there to me. I'm prepared to accept a materialist view of the brain. Every thought, feeling, and action depends on brain systems, brain function. And I'm also prepared, and we'll get onto this later maybe, to accept that neuroscience has some very strong challenges to the idea of free will. Um, but it's only at the level of conscious self that it really means anything at all. So um, I think I'll leave that there. Thank you very much, Paul. Hannah. Thank you. Um, so I think I, I think I kind of agree with a lot of what you've said, Paul. I mean, it seems to me that the question, um, are human beings free or not, is the wrong question um, and a dangerous question. Because if we ask ourselves about the ways in which human beings, all human beings, are caught in a deterministic universe, inevitably, that focuses our attention away from the really crucial ways in which some human beings are more free than others. So philosophers have long thought that just as a matter of metaphysical reality, we live in a deterministic universe. Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, David Hume in the 18th century, thought that every action that human beings perform comes about as a result of a chain of cause and effect. That's just the world, that's the metaphysical reality about the world that we live in. When I am confronted with a choice between a stick of celery and a piece of chocolate, however much I think I might have wanted to choose the celery, in the, in the end I choose the chocolate. Um, you know, I think as I'm going out for an evening that I'm not going to drink. And then I get someone hands me a glass of wine, I think, all right. And there's this way in which my actions are determined. Um, you know, another sort of deeper kind of psychoanalytic way of thinking about it would be that um, I used to think a lot about freedom and the way in which I was making choices. But it just turns out, as a matter of fact, that I've ended up doing broadly the same job as my mother. So there's a kind of, so, so there's this deterministic uh, metaphysical reality. But what David Hume pointed out is that, sure, the world is, the universe is governed by determinism. But that has no bearing 
on our phenomenological experience of the world, which is that of freedom. We feel as though we are free. We, we, um, we experience freedom. And it's that lived reality which I think we need to concentrate on, partly because, as Paula suggested, um, without the belief in freedom, we lose all sense of responsibility. So if it's, if it's um, not the case that I'm free not to murder, if I'm not free not to lie, then it would make no sense to blame me for doing those things. And the entirety of society becomes unintelligible unless we take it for granted that there is such a thing as freedom and the responsibility that goes alongside that. And secondly, the reason why I think we have to think about the freedom as it is experienced is because we all know the difference between um, a life that feels free and a life that is impeded in various ways. We are sitting here in Hampstead free to talk about freedom when there are people in this country who are locked in rooms being forced to have sex. There is a, there is a very distinct, um, there are many crucial distinctions uh, between the experience of freedom and different people's lives. And it's that, um, that sharp end, if you like, of the lived experience of freedom or unfreedom that we need to uh, take account of. A woman is unfree if she does not have access to legal, safe, free abortion. And of course, there, the ambiguity of the word free is very instructive because it indicates the ways in which our freedom as human beings is deeply dependent on our economic circumstances. So there are very basic ways in which money gives you freedom. In some countries, if you don't actually have money, you don't have the freedom to live because you can't afford health care. So I think that we have to take account, we don't, we don't wave you know, screw the metaphysics. <laughs> and, um, and let's focus on our lived reality, which is that we know the difference between a free and a less free life. And it's our responsibility as free agents to try to give people as much control over their lives as possible. Thank you. Thank you, you very much. <laughs> screw the metaphysics t-shirts will be available <laughs> after this session. <laughs> Julian Bagini. I think when, when Hannah said that free or not in that binary choice is the wrong question, I, I, that's what I, I completely agree with. I think that if, we, if there's any capacity that human beings have which deserves the name of free will, it's not something we either have or don't have, that freedom is a matter of degree. And we certainly don't have absolute freedom. And I think that the, the fundamental problem with this debate is that whenever anyone turns around and says that they, we don't have free will, and neuroscience shows we don't have free will, free will is incompatible with what we know about science and so forth, what they're doing is they're starting with a definition of free will, which people find intuitively plausible, but is fundamentally incoherent. You don't need science to show you that we don't have it. If you just think about it, we don't have it. Now, um, so let's start with Daniel Dennett wrote a very good book on free will called Elbow Room. And the subtitle is The Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting. And that subtitle alone tells you a lot that's important. Let's think about what free will could mean, what different versions of it we could have. And then let's think about the ones which actually, you know, we actually would want in the first place and those which are just kind of metaphysical fantasies and could never exist. 
So just to sketch out the view of free will, which I think people might assume is free will, which I think is completely incoherent, and I might say less about later about why it's incoherent, I think most people think that free will has a couple of related characteristics. The first one is, is, the, is the capacity at any given moment to, have, to do other than what you actually do. So a lot of people would say that if at, you, go, you, know, you, you, you go and ask, would you like a glass of wine? If you have free will, it means that. At that moment, you could have said yes, you could have said no. And if, it's not, if that's not true, you don't have free will. I think that's incoherent without thinking about science. I think that forget what everything you know about determinism and science. It's common sense that you are the person you are based on a combination of various factors, including your life experience. Put yourself in a situation where the factors are as they are. Given that combination of things, it's always, in a sense, inevitable that you're going to do one thing rather than another. If not, we'd be just random, unpredictable machines. So I think could have done otherwise is a huge red herring, although people think it's absolutely fundamental. The second thing is that people over, overestimate the extent to which a free choice has to be a conscious choice. So these psychology experiments which show that things start happening in our brain before we're aware of making the choice prove we don't have free will. Well, that's a fallacy because I am a human being. I have conscious and unconscious parts. And just because a lot of what I do is not driven by the conscious part doesn't mean it's free. And most of your day is not driven by conscious deliberation. You don't need a, a scientific experiment to tell you that most of what you do is not preceded by conscious choice, uh, unless you live a very kind of like over-controlling OCD type life. And the last thing is, is ultimate responsibility, which is a huge red herring. Responsibility is something we need to, to hold people to account, to make us adjust our behaviour. We don't need to be ultimately responsible for our actions for a more everyday notion of responsibility to make sense. So get rid of those excessively strict definitions of what free will are, which are incoherent, and we are left with something worthy of the name. Hillary. So ever since uh, it was proposed that the world was governed by a set of immutable laws as science proposes, it was immediately apparent that there seems to be a challenge between that idea and the idea that we have freedom in the sense that we can choose to do something. Because if there are immutable laws, how can we possibly choose to do something that's not governed by those immutable laws? And uh, that fundamental problem uh, has led to many people who wish to maintain the scientific story try to claim that in some way we can have both this and freedom. And let's just be clear why we need freedom. We need freedom because we need to understand other people. We interact with them all the time. If we don't operate on the assumption that they're making choices, then we can't make much sense of their behavior. We can't try really and influence their behavior because they can't make a choice. We can't make a judgment. We can't say somebody is courageous or they are weak-willed. We can't um, organize our society in ways which try and change the way things happen because there's no way anything can change. Uh, We can't have courts of law which decide on whether people are guilty because, of course, uh, people aren't free, so uh, they've got no choice about what they should do. So giving up on freedom is pretty damn serious. And at the same time, we want to be attached to the idea that there are uh, unchanging laws which govern 
the way the material world operates. And so what happens is that people try and hold these two and say, actually, they're not really incompatible, guys. Um, we, can, we can get by with both. Either they say, actually, there isn't really an incompatibility at all, or there is an incompatibility, it doesn't really matter. And the, the arguments put forward are really quite difficult to follow quite a lot of the time, and they are deeply implausible. It is perfectly obvious to most of us that we need both of these accounts. We need science on the one hand as an account based on, based on uh, these unchanging laws. Or I would say we need it. It works very, very well. And we certainly need freedom in our understanding of other people. Otherwise, we are just completely lost about how we deal with other people. So how do we solve that problem? So my uh, suggestion is that the way we solve that problem is we recognize that our different accounts here are not describing some ultimate reality. Science is not actually, when it is proposing that um, the world is governed by unchanging laws, it's really saying to us, hold the world as if it was governed by unchanging laws and operate within that model, what I call a closure. So it says, hold it like this. And if you hold it like this, explore the consequences of that model. You explore the consequences of the model, you add a bit here where it doesn't work, you try and get it to work, you add another bit over here to try and get it to work. You build your model, and the model enables you to intervene in the world. It means it enables you to intervene in the world immensely successfully. But it is a model. It is not a description, an ultimate description of reality. And on the freedom side, if you try and analyze exactly what freedom is, what do we mean by this word freedom? You will not get very far. It becomes really perplexing. What is freedom? Uh, but the way to think about that conversation is that freedom is a way of our understanding how humans interact. Let's operate on the basis that we have freedom and let's choose that as a vocabulary to order to account for how we can deal with other people and so forth. And we can do both of those things. We can do both of those things, providing we don't imagine that our accounts, in both cases, are ultimate descriptions of a reality beyond us. They're not. They're closures which help us to intervene and to make the world a better place, hopefully. Thank you. OK, now... Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. The first question that we're supposed to be addressing is, what is freedom? Is it achievable? Let's just get in on each other and deal with the ideas that other people have come up with uh, and so on. So, Paul, is there anything that you've heard in those first three presentations from I, your other I colleagues? You may have misheard Julian, but you, you seem to say that free will... If you think of free will in relation to the self, and the self has a kind of conscious component, and there are many unconscious processes that feed into that consciousness, you were saying that the whole sort of the wider version of the self is capable of free will. 
And I think I would disagree with that. I think it's, it's purely this in the moment, self-awareness, sometimes called the minimal self, where free will resides, if it resides anywhere, if we can talk about locating free will. Um, I don't think it has much to do with these unconscious processes because um, the essence of uh, a choice is consciousness of making a choice, I think. You well, might disagree with that. Well, I mean, the reason I'd sort of, like, one reason I'd question that is we're having a conversation now, right? And I think I'm speaking freely. I'm not making some prior conscious decision, even about the words I'm making. I, in, a, in a spontaneous conversation, I don't write myself a little script in my head and read a little auto cue. I'm he just, does. <laughs> he has a little. I, you know, the words are just coming out. So it seems to me, you know, th this used to be an example of I'm speaking freely, but there's no conscious decision to decide what I'm going to say. I, I am just saying no, but that, that seems to be free. That's exactly what I mean by in-the-moment consciousness, right. which I would contrast with uh, the more sometimes called extended self, which means extended over minutes or days or a lifetime, where we, where we tell a story, essentially, about what we've done. And I think choices are essentially uh, post hoc. Uh, the decision as whether to have tea or coffee or whatever is already made. Uh, you might then articulate it. You as the conscious self in the moment may not know. I don't know how this sentence is going to end. I have no idea how it's going to end. You know. So it's, it's completely in the moment. And I think if we can pin down free will at all, I think it has to be a kind of a, an experiential thing. It's a phenomenological uh, fact, if you like. It's, um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fact of personhood in the way that sort of facts of society, social realities might be football clubs or governments or, you know. So, but it's the in-the-moment stuff that really matters when it comes to free choice, I think. I like this. Very much like the Marxist basin superstructure uh, <laughs> argument. Um, Hannah? But how is this remotely operant in, in your daily life? You, when you're dealing with people, do you just assume, well, actually, they're not making any choices? No, of course not. It's, no, it's all, no. it's all, it's all uh, determined anyway. I am just imagining that I have a choice. No, it's, no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not imagined. Uh, I'm not going to make any judgments. There's no point in doing any of that. Or do you just think, well, all of that exercise of making judgments and, uh, and describing other people is itself determined and therefore... Uh, there's a sort of illusion uh, th for, for all of us. I think, I think illusion's not quite the right word. The whole word. thing is really, in a sense, yeah, no, I, I think illusion's not quite the right word because we inhabit the illusion, okay? So we live the illusion. I think, yeah. this, I think I'd say the same thing about the self. The self is an illusion. There is no inner core of the self. The self is a conglomeration yeah. of experiences so, and stories. So, and so I want to say to you, I think the reason that you hold this view is because... You want to hold the scientific account of the world, and that leads you to a point of saying that everything is determined by the laws. And therefore, you are pushed by that no. overall view to a situation where you have to deny something, which on a daily basis, I just don't believe you operate like that. But I'm not okay. denying it. I'm not denying it. Okay, Hannah. <laughs> it says, it says here, to go speak. to Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> Always a good idea. Um, so I think that, um, again, as I was sort of suggesting in my opening remarks, that we must be careful about falling down the kind of rabbit hole of metaphysics. And we must kind of, 
we, we need to defend a far more robust account of the experience of freedom. I mean, I really like the existentialist approach to freedom. So what they said is that, of course, you know, you're thrown into this world in su to such a large degree. The things that are most important about the way that our lives go are things that are completely out of con our control. Where we're born, who we're born to, what gender we're born into, what race we're born into. These matters are huge. They're structurally significant in terms of how our life will go. And we have no control over them. But what we do is we're thrown into this kind of web of determinacy. And then within that, these cracks open up, which do afford us freedom and choice. And it's our great responsibility as human beings to live up to that kind of vertiginous sense of responsibility and to act in one way rather than another. So, for example, you know, right now, thinking about climate change, we might say, oh, it doesn't make any difference what we do. We're not really agents here. Um, but of course, it does matter if everyone took it upon themselves to say, I will not fly or I will not fly more than once a year, or whatever it was, um, it would change the world. So I think we have to, I think it's brilliant that we, um, uh, that we attest to our freedom of agency and we want to make that as robust as possible and stand up for the fact that we do have a choice and we're responsible for what choices we make. Subtext, Hannah has flown once this year. <laughs> um, um, uh, so we know roughly the kind of field that we're talking about and some of the, uh, and where the areas of dispute comes. Into this mix now comes the question of what it is that uh, uh, scientific and technological advances are telling us. Now, some of them are telling us something. So if we were in a different tent, we'd be listening to Robert Plomin um, uh, 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 and others talk about DNA. Robert Plomin's own work suggests a high degree of heritability, variance by heritability, for factors you wouldn't believe were variable. Um, uh, uh, were, were, were variable called heritability, right into the right into the middle of the nature uh, versus nurture argument, turning that upside down. And so the question that is raised by science and technology is: What about us is in any way actually variable or ours to play with? Um, and so I'd like you to uh, muck around. Julian, why don't you kick us off on that? As far as you understand the chain, I know Paul should do it, but he's just had a good go. So. <laughs> well, let's muck around. To be honest with you, I, I don't think that anything in recent science and everything is, is, is filling in details. I think the, the fundamental issues around free will arose as soon as people started to accept that essentially we live in, an, in a universe governed by natural laws in which you know, there seems to be no escape from the chain of cause and effect. When you find out specific things about how the brain works or specific things about DNA, you're just getting more detail, which is extremely useful and important in, in certain regards, but not for the philosophical issue of um, free will. So, for, you know, for example, I mean, let's take the DNA thing and, we did, and genetics, blah, blah, blah. Well, way before anyone thought about that, People said things all the time like, you know, he takes after his father, he's just like, whatever. People recognised that who we are was not, was not of our own choosing completely. It was often a result of our inheritance. Now we have the language of DNA and genes, which kind of fills out the detail and makes that more Sorry, scientific. I don't want to interrupt you, but I watched Jeremy Corbyn give a speech in which he said, everybody can write a novel, everybody can compose, he doesn't say an opera, yeah. and so on. Uh, 
what quite a lot of this research shows is, yes, they could try, but they wouldn't make a very good job of it. And that a lot of that is predetermined. Yeah, but not, I don't think we think we always knew that. We always knew that some people had. I mean, the idea, the idea that we Jeremy needed Corbyn science... Jeremy Corbyn didn't know that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't know a lot, does he? Um, but... Um, no, I think that, you know, some people who have, who have paid attention... The fundamental issue from the scientific point of view has to be addressed is as soon as you accept the fact that the world is governed by, you know... Phys- so Laplace, you know, Laplace back in the 18th century, he, he sort of worked out that, you know, if you accept this sort of deterministic model of the universe, then there is a sense in which things happen with inevitability. He knew that way before any of this stuff. I, I, I don't think it adds anything, I don't think it adds anything fundamental at all. There's a lot of excitement about this. So if someone does a new experiment in which they show that some brain process occurs before a conscious decision and think, ah, oh, we've finally proven there's no such thing as free will. But I mean, you'd have been crazy to think that there weren't unconscious processes in your brain that were somehow causally uh, influencing your views before that. I mean, like, did people think before that experiment that, um, you know, nothing goes on in my brain until I consciously have a thought? You know, there's nothing preceding I know, it. I know loads of people who think that. They're crazy. <laughs> they haven't thought very properly. Oh, they, they act yeah. as if they yeah, think yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, H- Hannah, I mean, genetics is one area in this. Um, the use we currently make of technology, and you can choose to go wherever you want to on this, but one of the things which people know, let's say in the use by companies of uh, algorithms which reflect back to your previous preferences, that actually in a funny kind of a way, you're losing your capacity to exercise free choice in having your free choice freely exercised for you. Yeah. So come and do a humanities degree. I mean, I mean, come and think of, you know, this is the point again about the way that we can actually become freer as agents. So, of course, it's the case that, um, you know, there's a great, there's a huge issue now. And this is a new issue, it seems to me, in terms of our kind of manipulability as human beings in the relation to, uh, you know, the Internet and uh, social media and big data and the ways in which um, elections are kind of being, you know, won and lost on these bases. But I don't think that that is a reason for us to say, oh, well, we haven't got freedom anymore. That is an impetus for us to get all the more um, robust about uh, examining the sources, cross-checking the sources, not just believing everything that you read online. I mean, it seems to me like, as I say, it's a kind of invitation for um, an increased sense of our responsibility as agents rather than just throwing up our hands in despair and saying, oh, that's it. Our freedom's gone. Hillary. Well... I think the question I was wanting to ask you before, and it's relevant in this situation, is that we are agreed that freedom is vital. But I'm also agreed with the idea that uh, a framework where we suppose that the world is governed by unchanging laws is also very valuable. And the puzzle is how we hold both of those. And I've given you an account of how I think we do it. I would like to hear what the other panellists actually think is the solution to that incompatibility. But before we do, <laughs> before we do, we're going to hear Paul on the specific, uh, on the specific contributions in a way, if you can, because you are a neuroscientist. Do you think that what we're discovering gradually, if you like, kind of delimits the space that we attribute to free will? Uh, do you mean specifically with regard to neuroscience? Uh, well, or, a bit, yeah, I mean, because... I'm, first of all, I'd say I agree with um, what's been said about genetics. And, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to be a, an Olympic high jump champion. I'm just not built that way. You know, you know, and that's just obvious. Yeah, but that's because you, you know, you let yourself go. I let myself go. <laughs> Me too. I, what's that phrase? 
hot calling the kettle black here, but never mind. <laughs> he's right, he's right. Um, as regards to neuroscience, I'm also uh, in agreement with Hillary, actually. He thinks I'm not, but actually I am. Because I, th I think he's misunderstood what I'm saying, but we can come back to that. Well, he won't agree about that. Well, he won't, no. We'll have, we can debate that too. Yeah. But what, I think that we uh, screw the metaphysics is just about right. We should put Thank that you. to one side, okay? Uh, as to whether new knowledge, we've had new knowledge about the brain, you know, for, well, not forever, but since the mid-19th century, we've learned about, uh, you know, how speech is controlled in the brain, how movement is controlled. It doesn't make any difference to the way we speak and move. Um, but I would say that we shouldn't think of the self, this thing that takes these decisions, as fixed and immutable. It changes over time in the same person. It changes over historical time. So our sense of self is not, and you would know more about this than I do, our sense of self is not the same as the sense of self was in the Middle Ages. It certainly isn't the same as it was in uh, pre-Socratic Greece. Um, and the sense of free will changes with that. So I don't think that neuroscientific knowledge bears that much on how we actually feel and think about the question of free will. There are those specific experiments that show that um, it's a person's choice is predictable seven to 10 seconds before they themselves are actually consciously aware of making the choice. But that does not matter because that operates at a subpersonal level. And what I'm saying is it's, the, you know, it's at the personal level that we think about free will. That will change as, as we develop and change, as we gain more knowledge, and it will change culturally and historically. But it doesn't make, it, it, the specific neuroscientific facts of the matter really don't bear on the question, I don't think. And that's what we have to kind of, that's the kind of framework we have to get out of. And that's the extent to which I agree with Hillary, basically, that we, you know, we, it, neuroscience, which is basically based on a materialistic view of the world and cause and effect and so forth, is not relevant to the, the really important questions about free will. Um, that's it, really. Just in relation to your question about the extent, you know, this question about has, does science show us that we have no such thing as free will and if genetics shows that we're determined in certain ways? It seems to me that science doesn't say one thing and nor does genetics. So just as there are geneticists, like the one you were referring to earlier, who want to say that we are very significantly determined by our genetics, so there are scientists who want to say actually that genes are extremely complicated things and that they only actually have a bearing on our life insofar as they very complexly interact with environment and individuality and all sorts of things. So genes aren't, it's not like science shows there's no such thing as freedom. Science shows many things. And one of the things, for example, that you'll find in Cordelia Fine's brilliant work called Delusions of Gender is that genes don't determine anything except insofar as they are lived um, in individual bodies in particular worlds. While I am holding, while I'm promoting this notion of uh, seeing a, a scientific way of accounting for the world as a closure, as it were, as one way of holding the world and freedom as an alternative, I want to be very precise about what are the consequences within that particular closure. So in the case of the scientific model, I do want to say, are you therefore saying, Hannah, that you want to give up on the idea that um, there are unchanging laws which are governing the universe or not? 
Because it does seem to me that the scientific model somehow requires that idea, that that is part of the scientific story. And I, I don't quite understand what we do uh, if, if we don't hold to that metaphysical view. What, what is it just to give this up? Because that, that is the story, that, that is the basis of the model. Julian wants to answer this and Hannah wants him to answer it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just he has written a book about well, compatibilism. Well, look, I think, I think the part of the problem is that, that when we people say there's, there's this scientific determinism, it means everything's cause and effect, there are certain conclusions people draw from that which simply don't follow. One is that, therefore, there's no such thing as choice. Well, okay, that's not true. People make choices. The question is, you know, what's governing those choices? If, I, if you go to the, the coffee shop now, you will choose one thing or another. So the question is simply what's underlying that. And I think the other problem, which is really important, is that there are different sort of levels of organisation of matter. And it's kind of like ridiculous to think that if we accept a deterministic universe, then it means that it only ever makes sense to talk about cause and effect at some, like the subatomic level. That's not true. Now, I mean, and actually not even a lot of the people who deny free will say that. People say, oh, it's going on in your brain. Your brain is not fundamental physics. It's an organisation of matter at a higher level of organisation. Now, it seems to me that the reason we can have this sort of compatibilism is that yeah, the, the, the fact that the universe is a causally determined... I think you better tell people what compatibilism is. OK, so this is the view that we can accept the fact... Good question, good point. We can accept the fact that everything that happens is a result of laws of cause and effect. But the point is that, 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 that it doesn't mean that the only genuine explanations of what happened are to, do, are to do with what happens at the most fundamental level of physics. If you smash a car into a wall, the smashing of the car into a wall will cause both things to destruct. That is true and, and in no way contradicts what we know about science. We're simply describing it at a certain level. And in the same kind of way, I make choices, I make decisions, I have regrets, etc., etc. None of these things are just inherently incompatible with a deterministic universe. And, and, that, and once you see that, then the questions about what problems there are from free will become much, much more subtle and more interesting than we have to either accept the deterministic view or give up on freedom. I, I, it does seem to be that frustrating. Once you've explained it all, it seems some people are satisfied that what I'd say is free will is good enough for free will. Others don't. It's, it's, it's very difficult, actually. It seems to be no... What's difficult is to... No, no, no one, you know... What, what, what is funny is what makes people we settle... It's on, difficult. What makes people settle on one side or another seems to be not quite determined by the arguments. There seems to be almost something temperamental about it. Some people are temperamentally inclined to go one way or the other. It's, it's very unsatisfactory. I'm no, afraid. no, well, it's, it's what you might call anti-closure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.